This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour to help you become a better investor. And we're going to mix in a lot of data and some perspective developed with over 20 plus years of investment experience. We're going to get to the market performance here in a bit and run down some show topics. But first, we're going to go to our first caller question now. Got a question. I'm looking at McDonald's, more of a dividend investor, and I was wondering what would be a good price to get in McDonald's at. Look forward to hearing your answer. Have a good day. All right, looking at McDonald's, and this is in a strong downtrend really since the middle of July, peaked out really close to $300 per share. Now we're at 254. So down nearly 20% from its high. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, now that is doesn't sound like a lot, but for a company like McDonald's, that's a pretty strong pullback, and the technicals are pretty bad. Certainly in a strong downtrend. Now, the if you look at a weekly chart, there is – let me see here. I'm trying to draw a trend line here. And, yeah, we're approaching the trend line, which would be right around 245. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, right around 245. And that would be the next big support level. But the problem here is that – the multiples are high, still trading at 23 times earnings, well above average for the the market, and for a company that has pretty slow growth. Earnings are supposed to grow 15% this year and 8% next year, but those estimates continue to come down. So the big question is, where would this be a good value? And that puts me all the way back to the monthly chart. And then the actual major support is closer to $200 per share. That's where I would think about picking McDonald's up. Until then, I don't want to touch this. Obviously, they have a steady business. This would be considered a consumer staple, but they do have some debt in their balance sheet. They would be a bond proxy considering they are dividend payer. And right now, it's trading at pre-elevated prices. Yeah, 220 Sorry, 200 is the level that I would own McDonald's, but not until then. All right. Thanks for a call. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 45 minutes. And our main focus point is in regards to FTX customers. What are they doing with their capital now? What lessons have they learned, if at all? So we're going to touch on that. Also, Saudi Arabia and Russia are, are winning. They're winning the war in the energy world. And geopolitically. Why? Because they're cutting production and they're making more money. So we're going to touch on that topic and why this is a trend that is likely to continue because of the oil dynamics globally. 
Also, the dollar has been rallying for over three months now. I think we're at 13 weeks in a row, 14 weeks in a row where the dollar's been stronger. And we all know, or you should know, that a stronger dollar means problems for the rest of the world. When the dollar is the global reserve currency, when the vast majority of debt is denominated in dollars, this is an environment where the rest of the world struggles. So we're going to touch on that and who's going to be hurt the most or who is being hurt the most. And then a topic we didn't get to yesterday, which is on surge pricing spreading to the rest of the economy. We also have some voice bank questions to get to. One is in regards to PayPal, the other Exxon Mobil, and we'll get to some iTunes review questions and one coming from our website. All right, let's talk about the market today. It was a decidedly negative day overall for uh, the markets, but we would say this is, yeah, we're pretty close to some major support levels on the S&P. We're approaching that 4,200 on the S&P, 4,229 at the close today. The highest volume since, what day was that? The 15th, September 15th. So that was the start of this sell-off. And you know, maybe you could say that was the harbinger of, of things to come, that major uh, major volume down day after a bounce from mid-August into mid-September. And now we're at that next level. So we are certainly at major support. Today, large cap growth took it on the chin, down over 2%. Large cap value only down 0.78%. The small caps in general, though, were... We're struggling down 1.85%, large caps down 1.45%. And the VIX did spike. The VIX did spike above 20 briefly for the first time since, was that June? May. Sorry, May. So obviously the fear in the markets is starting to pick up. And I'm sensing that we're pretty close to a near-term bottom. If you look at the credit markets, for example, They are certainly selling off, but nothing major is breaking at the current time. And you have the 10-year. 10-year sitting at 4.8% at the close today, approaching that all-important, I wouldn't say all-important, watched, mostly watched uh, round number of 5%. Now, the 30-year did get much closer to that 5% level, closing at 4.93%, all about the Fed and being higher for longer, and clearly... Hedge funds were offsides. A lot of comp- a lot of positioning for rates to come back down, and that has not happened. And the reaction to markets has been fierce. And obviously, the bond market and bond proxies are taking the worst of the brunt. All right, that was the market today. We'll see if we can get an oversold bounce tomorrow and see how much legs that potentially has. Remember, we have the jobs number that comes out on Friday. Today, the sell off was on the jolts number. The jobs openings, instead of shrinking like it has been as of late, it actually increased. And so that was the that was the, the story of why rates moved up so dramatically today. But I don't really believe it. I don't think the jolts number is a great proxy anymore because of work from home and hiring in multiple regions, etc. But... The Friday will be the big number to see how many jobs were created. All right, we're heading to a break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank, or if you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888 99 Chart. Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. 
I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here. And, and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things. The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday. Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting, these have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that. Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888 99Chart. Now, our main focus point today looks in the story around FTX customers who lost a ton of money due to the bankruptcy. And there is a new documentary that's being released actually yesterday. It was released yesterday by CNBC. And nobody, no customers from FTX have received anything. But many of them continue to be optimistic around the sector as a whole. I feel the fundamentals around Bitcoin haven't changed. And while investigators have discovered $8.9 billion are missing from FTX coffers and only $7.3 billion have been recovered. So you can do the math there on the difference. About a billion and a half plus are, are missing. But that $7.3 billion doesn't mean that people have received their money. In fact, some people have even taken their claims, and you can do this. You can sell your bank bankruptcy claim for pennies on the dollar. And right now, it's about 11% of the bankruptcy claim that you might have. So if you were an FTX customer, you can go sell that, and you'll get about 11 cents on the dollar. Now, what's interesting here is they profiled a few of these customers, and that one that sold its bankruptcy claims, claim, excuse me, bankruptcy claim, they actually reinvested it in crypto, in Bitcoin. That's what's wild about this. You just lost 89% of your money and you're doing the same thing again. Even, even people within the FTX organization, they highlight Brett Harrison. He's the former president of FTX US. He says he was blindsided by what happened. But instead of going to a more traditional industry, he's been raising money to start a new company within the crypto space. And this, the moral here is that you don't want to get too dogmatic. You don't want to be too married to one particular viewpoint or asset class. I love the saying, strong opinions loosely held, which means when there's new data that may throw a wrench in your viewpoint on a particular company, asset class, sector, etc., you're more than willing to incorporate that in 
and potentially change your mind. Now, this goes against a lot of tendencies, natural human tendencies, to want to be right. And I'm sure these people want to say this is a one-off. But if you look at the history of crypto, not a long one, to be fair, you'll see it's filled with the FTXs of the world. This isn't the first time. Guarantee it won't be the last time. Especially with regulation becoming or, or coming on very slow. And so companies that commit fraud, that employ fraudsters, or simply overlever themselves, they're going to continue because of the lack of guardrails within the industry. And so what I say, the lesson is focus on the value that an asset creates. How does this make someone's life better? And that's what will support the industry longer term. Is by creating solutions that truly make business better, life better, transactions easier. And in some cases, that's true, but it doesn't make it much easier than the current system. And it, and it introduces other risks. So it's not just about solving a problem, but also keeping the same safeguards as that other solution. For example, look at Visa and MasterCard. I think longer term, they certainly will have their hands full to pivot away from what they do now. And there'll be more competitors. I agree with that. But if you have fraud in your Visa card, well, there are mechanisms for that to be reversed or covered. There's not that within the crypto space. And so it's not just about creating a different solution. It's about creating a better solution. And until crypto does that in a more consistent way, it's still going to be filled with those that are chasing big returns, chasing that next big winner as opposed to that next big value creator. Now, probably the smartest thing I, I saw within this documentary was saying how they want to focus on what was the quote? I got to find the quote here. It was a great quote. I gotta find it. I can't find the quote. Maybe I'll find it after the break. Um, oh, here it was. All the success is made in the trenches, not when everybody's already celebrating. So what that's basically saying is that during the down times, during the bad times, uh, those people that are only interested in chasing kind of go away. And the people who are focused on creating value within the industry may remain and they build and they get in the trenches and they uh, solve problems. And I think that's true, but it's going to take many, many years for those problems to ultimately be solved and for the industry to stabilize. And it's going to need regulation. All right. And as we go to a break, let me remind you to check out our new Talk Classroom series. Episode eight is up on how to gauge the U.S. economy 
So just head over to YouTube and search Invest Talk Classroom. Now, our phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888 chart You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Hello, Justin and Steve. This is James from Georgia. I'm trying to call you guys about PayPal. That's ticker symbol PYPL. I own it. It's down 26.5%. Going forward, do you see this thing coming back? Is this something maybe I should get out of, maybe invest in something else? Greatly appreciate your advice. I love the show. Thanks. Are looking at PayPal, and this is a name that people have been trying to catch this falling knife for a while now. It peaked back in July of 2021. So it's been in a downtrend for over two years. It peaked at 300 and change, a little over $300 per share. Now we're at $57 per share, $57 per share. And what's interesting is that the earnings continue to go up. Now it was trading at an egregious valuation back then, but earnings were 296 in 2019 and 460 in 2021 when it peaked. So clearly, it was trading at, what, 80, 90 times forward-looking earnings? Way too expensive. This is a perfect example of the type of company that you never want to pay 100 times forward-looking earnings. Or even close to that. Because you get a price break and suddenly everyone's going to rush out and it's going to find a reasonable price level. Now, one could argue it's gone much further than reasonable, and it would be cheap. But there are some longer-term headwinds here. We talked about crypto solving problems and competing with a Visa or MasterCard network, but also compete with PayPal. And you have the rise of Zelle, which kind of goes around PayPal, and Venmo, which PayPal also owns. And then the continued... Development within inside the Fed of FedNow, which would basically allow everyone to have money at the Federal Reserve, have a bank account at the Federal Reserve, and transmit money that way. So why use PayPal if that's going to be the case? And that's what the market is telling me here, that that is becoming increasingly likely. And until the technicals improve, I would be selling it. Technicals are bad. There's no way else to look at this. It's in a strong downtrend. It continues to make a series of higher high, sorry, lower highs and lower lows. And it just made a new lower low from its low in August. So sell it, move on. Now, if this ever starts to develop higher highs, higher lows... The moving averages start to point upwards instead of downwards, which they all are pointing right now, then you could start to think about getting back on, on board. But until then, I'm passing on PayPal. Take your losses, find something else. All right, let's touch on oil. And most importantly, Saudi Arabia and Russia, the two most important members of OPEC Plus. 
And they cut production or continued their production cuts that were in place last October when they said they would slash 2 million barrels a day from production. It's the biggest production cut since the start of the pandemic. Then they did a second cut of a million barrels in May from Saudi Arabia. And then another million barrels in July. And then in September, they said they plan to keep those cuts in place till the end of the year. And this has helped both countries in a big way. Oil revenues in Saudi Arabia this quarter are up $30 million a day compared to the April through June period. Increased about 5.7% despite the cut. Russian oil revenues are likely up by about $2.8 billion in the second half of the year. All because of simply higher prices. Crude is up, benchmark Brent crude is up 25% during the, the, the third quarter. And OPEC plus forecasts predict a deficit of 3.3 million barrels per day during the fourth quarter. So supply is fundamentally tight. And remember, these are countries that have very low production costs. The Saudi Arabia has about a $9.30 per barrel cost to produce oil. Russia is at about $12.80. So every increase in price goes straight to the bottom line. Saudi Arabia is using that money to fund mega projects. They have a new city called Neom that they're spending $500 billion on. It's planning to be the size of Massachusetts. Think about that. Obviously, Russia is spending on the war in Ukraine. And the price caps of $60 per barrel on Russian oil that was imposed by the group of seven advanced nations to curb Russian oil outputs, that's not working. They're selling for about $75 per barrel in the markets. And so what's happening here is both of these countries are now the swing producers. As we've said recently, shale oil production is actually in decline over the past few months. And so they are in control, and Russia especially will continue to weaponize energy. So expect that going forward. I do not expect energy prices to backslide much, even if we get a softer economy. All right, we're heading into a break. I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions now at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, 
AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. InvestTalk is here to help. And when you download the free InvestTalk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open, 888-99-CHART. Now, in the next InvestTalk, we will look into the story behind this question. With savings account rates higher than most mortgage rates, how can you optimize your situation? The majority of American homeowners with a mortgage are paying less than 5% interest, and high-yield savings accounts offer a return above that figure. We're going to dig into that topic tomorrow. But first, we're going to touch on a question that came in via our website and said, how to achieve appropriate laddering? My question is, how can I achieve appropriate laddering to protect my wife for her lifetime? We're both 82, so I want to provide her to age 95, 13 years or so, while assuming I will predecease her. We will have 2.5 million in a CRT distributing 225,000 per year. And that is that enough to live on new outside funds are being added to the CRT laddering CD out to five years. These CDs are my only fixed income assets. As I anticipate inflation uh, outside the CRT, we have all stock portfolio, 3 million to draw on plus rent rental income. How far in the future should the ladder go? All right, and our CD is the best vehicle to protect my wife. Uh, okay, so our CD is the best at this point. Well, you're going to have to compare that to what you're getting in the treasury market. Remember, CD rates are there's there's competition there with other banks, but also in this market, there's competition with the treasury market. So, what type of yield are you getting on CDs versus treasuries? Both technically are backed by the government. So I would look at treasuries and CDs. How far out should you go? I probably wouldn't go out longer than five years. I know you are talking about protecting her for 13 years, but when you look at inflation, if inflation continues to accelerate for whatever reason, maybe the Fed's forced to pivot and that brings the dollar down and, and inflation reaccelerates which I think is certainly possible. And rates go not from 5% of the 10-year to maybe 7% of the 10-year. Maybe 8%. Maybe double digits. And that's going to be driven really by that inflation. And so you don't want to be stuck with what looks like a good nominal rate today, say 5%, 5.5%. 10-year right now is what, 48 that's high compared to what we've been used to over the past couple decades, but it's not high in history. And in fact, 
once again, if inflation re-accelerates, that could be a negative real return. So I would still remain within those five years. Now, I would give her maybe instructions on how to roll that in case you do pass away. You could also pass along the duties of this, spell that out in your trust, for example, of how to roll those CDs out later. It's one way to think about it as well. But honestly, I don't know if I know enough about the situation. How much you want to leave to the next of kin? How much she's going to spend if you do pass, for example? What are the health considerations? Do you have, for example, long-term care insurance? So if you want to set up a portfolio review, and we can kind of go over this in a little more detail, I can probably give you an even better answer. Uh, but that's my kind of broad-based answer. I still would not go out more than five years. All right, let's keep things moving and pivot back to the Best Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier at 888 chart Hey, this is Andrew from Atlanta. I love the show, guys. I was just trying to give you a call about uranium ETF that I have. U-R-N-M is the ticker symbol. Your opinion, what are your thoughts on this stock? I'm in it, and I plan to hold it for a long time. Curious what you think about it. Love the show, man. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Well, this is not a stock. It's an ETF, like you said. And this is the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF. So it owns a smattering of the uranium miners. And as you would expect, its biggest holding is, I believe, it's Kamiko. See? Let's pull up the portfolio here. There we go. Oh, no. Get. Kazataprom out of Kazakhstan, that's number one, about 17% of the portfolio. Kamiko is 13%. And this has pulled back as of late. It was pretty overbought and it peaked, almost got to $50 per share. Now we're at 43, spot 95 at the close today. It, it was overbought and it probably will pull back a bit more. Uh, if you look at the chart, the 50 day moving average is all the way down to $39 and change. So there still could be about 10% more downside, but at least in the near term. But longer term, I still say uranium is probably the best energy subsector that's out there because of where it's coming from. The use of uranium and nuclear energy is has been depressed since Fukushima. But if you look at the broad safety record of the industry, it's pretty good. Yeah, there are some issues, but the vast majority of them, uh, if there were issues, there were minor. And there are ways to solve for those potential risks and lower the potential risks dramatically with good engineering. And if you're looking for green energy, the simplest most efficient way to produce carbon-free energy is through nuclear. And you continue to see the trends within governments and even the population being more welcoming of nuclear energy. And that means higher demand for uranium. So while this is overbought and it's working off that overbought condition, I still think this is I don't think anybody should not have 
uranium in their portfolio to some degree. Maybe it's only 1% of their portfolio, but it should be something. All right, let's play two in a row from 888.99 chart. Yeah, good morning. This is Sayed from Chicago. I've been listening to you guys for quite a long time. I really appreciate what you guys do. I've learned a lot of stuff from you guys. I have a question about XLU, that utility ETF. It went 52-week low these days, yesterday. So is it a good time to get in? I want to know your take, what you think about it. I like to invest in this. Pays 3.5% dividend. It's a 52-week low. So please let me know. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. All right, think about that. 3.5% dividend yield. 3.5%. We just talked about the 10-year at 4.8. Short-term treasuries are around 5.5. This is playing 3.8. 3.7, actually, is what I'm seeing. This is why it's selling off, because it's no longer that attractive of a yield compared to the rest of the bond market. Utilities are bond proxies. And that's why it's selling off with bonds. Now, I will say, as I, the caller yesterday about NEE, I said, you know, there's probably a balance. It's oversold. But I'd be selling into that balance. And you saw NEE up over 1% today. XLU, same, up over a little over 1% today. And there's very high volume over the past week, which does say that it's probably oversold. And so if you want to play a bounce, sure. Probably will continue that bounce, especially if we get a peak in rates anytime soon. But this is a message to everybody out there. I've been saying this for the last couple of years. You don't want to own a lot of duration. And that's what fixed income, most fixed income has a good amount of duration. And equities that would be bond proxy-like also struggle. Utilities are one. Consumer staples are another. You see that is very, very weak. And I can just pull up like a relative strength number. XLU relative strength is 25. XLP, the consumer staple sector, 39. The REIT sector, IYR, 31. So this is not a time to be stepping in front of those for a long-term hold, unless you do think we're heading, entering back into a secularly disinflationary environment. I don't. I see no evidence that that is the case. Now, if I'm wrong, XLU, XLP, IYR, those three sectors that are the most bond proxy-like within the equity space, those will do fantastic. But if I'm right and you get a bounce, you know, Yields come back down. That's certainly possible. You could get a nice rally in many of these names near term. 
they will ultimately simply roll over and make new lows. And that nice 3.5% yield on real estate or, let's see, consumer staples, 2.8, utilities, 3.7. It's not going to mean a whole lot. So let this be a message. Listen to the market. Listen to the message it's, it's, ten, it's, it's sending you. Don't get caught up in just the dividend. You're not invested, investing in the dividend. That is not what buying an equity of any stripe is about. It's about the business that ultimately can pay a dividend. Maybe it won't. Like a Berkshire. Berkshire hasn't, has never paid a dividend. And it's been a great investment. So why do you think that you have to buy a dividend payer in order for it to be a good investment? No, you don't. And I say in this environment, I actually want companies that pay small dividend. Because they're less bond-like. People aren't investing in them because of the dividend. I much rather own companies right now that pay a 0.8% dividend yield. A 1.2% dividend yield. Than ones that pay a 6.5% dividend yield, a 5% dividend yield. Because guess what? Those investors that own that name, they're probably owning it for the dividend. And now what are they doing? They're looking at the bright and shiny, risk-free, three-month treasury, six-month treasury, and saying, well, I don't need the income from this. I can go buy the treasury. And that's what's happening across the market right now. So I encourage you all, don't try to catch these bond proxies. Don't look at the dividend yields and think of it as a dividend yields compared to where we've been for the past 20 years. We are entering a secularly inflationary environment, which means a secularly higher interest rate environment. And you must now compare those yields to today's environment, not yesterday's environment, not a year ago, not a decade ago, today and tomorrow and the next day, which guess what is an environment of structurally higher inflation. And this is why I say you have to think differently. We talk about this all the time. I say, let's do a portfolio review. You need to think differently about your portfolio. You need to think differently about your strategy. This is exactly what I'm talking about. We didn't have to worry about, about duration risk for 30 years plus because duration risk was a good thing. Because that means you were locking in rates today that were going to be lower tomorrow, most likely. Now it's the inverse, it's the flip of that. You lock, you're locking in rates that are, have a good chance of being higher tomorrow. And so that's why you go back to that, that question from that 82-year-old uh, listener who's trying to protect his wife and saying, yeah, you can go, with, you can go to a 13-year duration, but that's probably not the best idea. 
The number one question you should ask about any asset you are owning in today's market is what is the duration risk? That's the number one. It's weird to say it. It's weird to think it because you haven't had to do it. But if you look at history, you study history, you study these cycles, you actually just look at what businesses and companies and, and, and uh, politicians are doing, governments are doing, you can see this is all driving towards more inflation. And that's what the bond market is freaking out about now. So I know that was a long answer, but I wanted to back it up to give you the context. Because it's not just about XLU. It's not just about laddering CDs. It's about the entire investment universe. All right, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here each and every weekday is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom in this new economy. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. The stock market is constantly changing. And now with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on Invest Talk. 888 99Chart. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm hoping this question finds Justin as he's saved me a lot of money in the past. Nearly two years ago, I called about Top Golf Callaway, ticker MODG. Justin's insight persuaded me to sit on the sidelines for a little bit. At the time, I did a deep dive and sent an alert at $14. I had completely forgotten about the stock. However, last week, my alert was triggered. The company has not fundamentally changed in this time. I also understand that economic outlook has changed drastically and consumer discretionary businesses won't do well in recessionary times. But would you mind sharing your thoughts on top golf and a potential entry point? This would be for a 10 plus year hold. I know the technicals are horrible right now. Go against everything you say, but with a little more insight would be great. Thank you. Are you, well, you're correct. Mod G is a symbol, M-O-D-G, Top Golf Callaway brands. And it remains in a very strong downtrend. It peaked around $37 per share in late summer 2021. So it is down, what's that, 60, 70% from its high. And the big issue here is twofold. Debt, they have about $1.4, $1.5 billion in net debt on its balance sheet and a market cap of $2.5 billion. And free cash flow is now at negative $564 million. So back in 2021, it peaked out around $214 million positive free cash flow. And that has been flipped on its head and then some, negative $564 million in the trailing 12 months. Cash from operations is also negative. So their core business was producing about $352 million excuse me, in free cash flow or, or cash from operations as of the end of the third quarter in 2021. Now, trailing 12 months is negative $8.8 million. So you have a lot of debt and a business that is not producing positive cash flow. 
And then you look at the shares outstanding, and that remains right at about 185 million. Now, the good thing is that hasn't changed much as of late. They're not issuing more shares, but they are adding to their debt levels, which in this environment is obviously a problem. So the technicals remain poor, the business remains poor. And if you look at quote unquote earnings, they're expected to be 65 cents for next year. That's about a 20 times forward-looking multiple, but it's shrinking. It's business is shrinking. Last two quarters, you have negative earnings per share growth, negative earnings per share growth expected this year. So why would I pay 20 times earnings for that? The simple answer is I wouldn't, especially with that debt load. So this looks like it's clearly headed for the single digits, and I would pass 100% on Topgolf Callaway. All right, let's touch on the dollar. The dollar is extremely strong. Since mid-July, the greenback is up 6.6%. And last week, the dollar closed out its best quarter since last fall. So this is starting to break things again. We've said that many times. Everyone thinks a weak dollar is bad. Well, for asset prices and financial stability in a world where the dollar dominates, that's certainly not true. The dollar weak is a good thing. A strong dollar is a bad thing. And recently, countries like the Chilean peso, the Hungarian forint, those are all down more than 8%. And this is all because of resilient domestic economy, higher interest rates, that when you compare that to other countries is a lot higher. So that relative value that they're getting for buying treasuries, for example, compared to other countries, like in Europe, continues to dwindle or actually skyrocket if you look at that spread. So it's becoming a big problem once again. And it's going to be negative for global trade because our, our products are becoming more expensive for the rest of the world. Now, the damage isn't as bad as it was last fall when you had blowups in Sri Lanka and Ghana, and then you had issues with the JGB and the US, uh, the UK gilt market, etc. But you're starting to approach those levels. And that's the level that the Fed doesn't want to see. And that's why I think you're actually near the peak in the dollar, at least medium term, because I do think the economy will weaken as we enter 2024. And that will reverse that narrative that the U.S. economy is drastically outperforming the rest of the world. I think it is, but not to the magnitude that is being priced into markets right now. All right. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, downloads which you can get anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. InvestTalk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. 
a registered investment advisor firm, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.